Hello, I'm Paul King. I'm the co-writer and director of Paddington 2. And uh, welcome to the commentary. I'm going to be talking you through the film and explaining a little bit about the way we made it and, and all the work that goes into the film. So if you or any little ears nearby don't want the magic of cinema spoiled and the, and the illusion of Paddington shattered, then, uh, then this is probably not the commentary for you. This first shot of the film was actually the last shot that we finished. This whole sequence, the Peruvian opening, was, was quite a late addition to the film. We were trying to find a, a way into the story that introduced uh, Paddington and, and, and Aunt Lucy and, and Uncle Pastuzo and their relationship, and it's especially the relationship between Paddington and Aunt Lucy that's going to sort of drive the story. And, uh, and, and the sort of seeds that we plant here really pay dividends right at the end of the film as, as their relationship becomes a real thing. The first version of the script that we wrote had Aunt Lucy sort of looking after Paddington in a crib and, and it was very sweet, but uh, it didn't quite have the sort of drama and scale that we ended up feeling that we wanted. Sort of starting a film is always quite a tricky thing and, and, and there are lots of different things that we needed to do. And the first five minutes of this film were, were quite hard to crack all the way through the, the script and, and the shooting and, and even the editing. And what we felt this sequence did was uh, not only introduce you to, to Lucy and Pastuzo and, and the idea that Paddington came from darkest Peru for, for viewers who hadn't seen the first film, but uh, also showed you the, the scale of adventure that we were going to go on in the film. One of the things that Simon Farnaby, my co-writer, and I wanted to do from the, from the very start was, was find a story that sort of snowballed, that started with a very small event and then grew and grew into a, into a sort of bigger action thing because the Paddington stories are often sort of quite small, delicate little things like Paddington puts up a hammock or, or Paddington tries to do some DIY and, and we really wanted to keep that spirit of the Michael Bond books but build it into a bigger screen adventure and, and so we sort of have this kind of snowball narrative and... Uh, and we really wanted to find a scene early on that sort of before the scene comes, which goes, this is going to be a film where the stakes will get high. There will be life and death is, is coming. And, uh, and so we did it in this prologue. These shots here where Aunt Lucy sees Paddington for the first time are, are really important to establish the love that she has for him. And I, I think this bit of performance here from Imelda Staunton and our brilliant animators is extraordinary for showing how she, she really falls in love with the little cub and how the little cub falls for her and and really that's it ended up being a very key beat of the story this this idea that Lucy loves Paddington so much that she gives up her dream of going to London and and Paddington to a certain extent when we see him here is is living out Aunt Lucy's dream it's it's one of the strange uh, predicaments of his kind of immigrant status that he's he's been sent here by Aunt Lucy because Aunt Lucy loved London of course in the first film Paddington thinks Peru is the best place in the world and, and doesn't think a bear can belong in London and and over the course of that first film he he discovered that he could have a place in London but by the time he gets uh, to the beginning of the second film he's totally at home in London and, and that's what we were trying to do in this sequence to show Paddington at home and perfectly happy and, and what it's like to have a bear living in the house with you. I really like the toothbrush sequences because it feels like it's a, it's a sort of step up from the first film where we have a lot of business with toothbrushes and it felt like a very fun way of doing something with a sequel. Sequels always tend to be bigger and louder and more dramatic and, and I like the idea that in a Paddington film, which is sort of not really any of those things, our big upgrade is, uh, is not like a new bat suit or something, but it's electric toothbrushes that he shoves straight into his ears. 
Just a minute, young bear. It's great to see the family back together again. This is a, a very short scene. In the first five minutes of the film, the, the time's so precious. You really need to get a lot of things up and running, especially in, in this film. We need to meet Paddington and the family, and we also meet, need to meet all the neighbours, and we've met all the other bears, and, and the sort of first four or five minutes are incredibly compressed with information, and but they also need to feel like they're, they're flowing very nicely and easily, and, and uh, so, so we, everything's very concise. That scene with the Browns is only a few seconds and again we have to meet all these neighbours and in very quick snapshots uh, get to know them. And we were so lucky to have this extraordinary cast of, we've met Sanjeev Bashkar, Dr. Jaffrey and, and Ben Miller who plays the Colonel and Jessica Hines and we're about to see Robbie G who is the bin man and of course Mary France Alvarez who is the, 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 our French cyclist. Uh, and uh, one of the nice things about working on Paddington 2 when people had got to know Paddington 1 and the film had been a, a, a success and people had seen it was we were able, actors were very willing to come and play and that's an extraordinary cast that you, that you get to come and to be in your film in really very small parts and a lot of them are really my, my comedy heroes or people I've always wanted to work with and uh, it's a real joy as a director when you, you write a letter saying would you like to be in, in the film and, and these extraordinary people say yes to even very small parts so we were incredibly lucky to have them. Judy. That little bit of animation there from uh, uh, from Mary's drawing was done by some brilliant people at Passion who do these amazing uh, Passion Pictures, who, who are a visual effects house, who do these extraordinary hand-drawn animations, among other very brilliant things. And uh, uh, it was a real treat putting that together. It was uh, it, just very nice to do something so resolutely sort of lo-fi and unsophisticated in, in, in a film that has a lot of CG in it. And, and that's one of the things we tried to do all the way through Paddington is, is to sort of try and keep a combination of, of Paddington, who's clearly this extraordinary high-tech creation and, and really uh, world-class visual effects. And we always try to combine it with things that are much more simple and in-camera to say that the film doesn't feel like it's got lost in a sort of ridiculous explosion-led computer-generated world. And I think it helps it feel much more grounded and real, like it has a tone of its own. Often when you're spending a lot of money on a film, you feel the filmmakers are just trying to show off about how much money they're spending. And I think on this film, we're always trying to do the opposite. We're trying to make it feel very homely and cosy and quite sweet. Painting his hair and engaging... This shot of Henry doing the splits is, is, was very entertaining to shoot. He looks pleasingly ridiculous. And uh, one of the things when we were writing Henry, Simon and I, we, we, we wanted him to be having this midlife crisis and feeling that he's gone to seed and, you know, his belly's popped out and he's kind of, you know, getting a bit tubby and a bit, a bit feeling a bit rubbish about himself. And, of course, Hugh Bonneville's very sort of handsome, attractive guy. <laughs> and when we turned up, it, you, we discovered in this scene where he needed to do the splits, he was actually surprisingly limber and uh, not quite as ridiculous as we wanted him to look, but uh, he managed to pull it off in the acting. Here we see Paddington coming into Mr. Gruber's shop. Here's Jim Broadbent, one of my favourite actors of all time and, and a brilliant comedian. Simon and I both love Bullets Over Broadway, where he gives one of the great comic performances, and, and which that film is a, is a great Woody Allen film about uh, acting and, and theatre and was actually a great influence for the, for the character of Phoenix Buchanan that we're going to meet later on. But here he is being Mr. Gruber, and 
I love the relationship that Paddington and he have. It's it's sort of really important for the film. It's it, it's another character to meet in the sort of first five or six minutes of the film, which is which is a, a lot to get through for an audience. But he's such a key part of Paddington's world. He's he's a fellow immigrant, and you feel that he understands the world in the way that Paddington does. And uh, he gets his words wrong, and he's got fun ideas. But but there's a real connection between them, and you feel that this scene. Is, is very important because you feel Mr. Gruber understands why it's important for Paddington to get a present for his Aunt Lucy in a way that perhaps nobody else does. He knows what it's like to have left a family in another, in another land. And one of the things we really wanted to do when we were making this film is making a sequel is, is to find the next chapter of Paddington's story that didn't feel like he was simply retreading the story of the first film where, where he found a home and irritated people and, and, then, and then sort of won them over. And it was very important that to, to look at Paddington where he is. He, he's got a, a family and he's got a, a house and he's got a, he, that there's a, a few friends. And, and by the time we meet him at the start of this film, he's made friends around the neighbourhood. But there's a key part of his heart that's missing, and that's, that's Aunt Lucy, of course. She's still in Peru in the home for retired bears. And while we say he's just looking for a, a present for her, you feel, hopefully, subconsciously, you suspect that there might be something a bit more important going on, that he's actually missing her. Which is why when he looks in the pop-up book and he imagines Aunt Lucy coming to London, it's not just her who's looking around, but Paddington is showing her around. And this hug, I think, is one of the most beautiful parts of the film. Because you feel that even though Paddington doesn't quite say it, and he hasn't perhaps quite vocalised it to himself, what he really wants is to hug his aunt, who he deeply misses. And uh, this sequence is really a way of expressing that, that deep-felt yearning. It was also an incredibly difficult sequence to put together uh, physically. It's one long uh, shot where the camera keeps swirling around them and going through various pop-up book pages. And it was incredibly complicated and took well over a year to, to work out from start to finish. It's only about three sentences in the script and was just uh, a, a whole year of a very tough uh, building of the animation. The first thing we had to do was build a book out of paper and work out how the pages would work. And then the brilliant people at Framestore, including Dale, who was the, the lead animator on this, uh, would rebuild those pages in CG. And then we would try and work out how the camera could move around them and work out what Paddington and Aunt Lucy were doing. And really the whole sequence is a dance between the camera, Paddington, Aunt Lucy and the pop-up book. There's sort of four moving elements and it was incredibly complicated to put together. But but I think works really well and has a beautiful bit of score by Dario Marinelli, who, who, who wrote the score for the film and is truly terrific. Uh, he's actually a different composer than we had on the first film where Nick Urata wrote, wrote the score, which I also thought was absolutely brilliant, but Nick was based in LA and, and one of the things that was quite tricky was finding enough time to spend together. So, so Dario joined us on this film and, and it was a great pleasure to be able to sit with him more personally and, and work with him. This is what I suppose is the sort of first classic Paddington sequence of the film. Uh, and this is very much inspired by the works of Michael Bond. There's a great scene where Paddington uh, works in a barber and, and some of the same things happen. He's certainly mistaken for the barber and tries to do some hairdressing and it goes, of course, terribly wrong. Michael Bond's work is a hugely rich resource for us when we're writing the film. I mean, one of the things that was nice about writing a sequel was we knew a lot of the building blocks of what was what was happening already. So, so we knew what Paddington looked like and we knew who the actors were who were going to play the Browns and, and, and we knew the spirit and the tone of the world. So it, it was a very nice place to start. And uh, But we absolutely went back to Michael Bond's stories and, and, and tried to look for material that we felt could help tell the story or, or that could work in the story. They, they 
they tend to be short stories. There are some longer narrative moments, but they're not really film-sized narratives. But when you get something as lovely as a barbershop sequence, it, it, it's a real treat. That said, they're incredibly complicated sequences to put together because they're all about Paddington's performance, and uh, that's something that we work on with uh, 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 various people. So Simon's a great comedian and, and works with me very closely at the script stage, but then we also workshop for a long time. There's a brilliant uh, physical comedy director called Cal McChrystal who uh, I assisted when I was starting out and I, who taught me virtually everything I know, and he works with a great guy called Javier Marzan, and we all, we all work together with uh, Pablo Grillo, our animation director, and and really we workshop these things for weeks and weeks and weeks and uh, every tiny last little beat we try to work out how should Paddington furrow his brows, how should he raise his eyebrows, how does the, the jackhammering razor work. And these things are very complicated and, and, and even when you think you've got it working, something like this sequence, the, the way the fur moved when he's jackhammering was incredibly complicated and, and uh, you sort of, I think it's very easy for people to assume that because things are done in a computer or with a computer, they're also somehow magically done by the computer. And the thing about Paddington is every single frame is hand-tooled animation. It's not motion capture because nobody looks like a bear and nobody can even quite act like Paddington, even a combination of Ben Whishaw doing the beautiful voice work and, and Javier Marzan giving us some great physical uh, reference. And, and we use Ben as a reference a huge amount but Paddington is Paddington and he is a he is an animation and uh, nobody could physically do the things he does exactly so so there's a huge amount of handcrafting and even the way the fur moves when he's bouncing up and down that was about the 10th or 12th iteration of how that fur should actually wobble and every time you render a shot it has to go away for weeks to to, to see sort of how it comes out of the the computer at the end of it and uh, it was only really right at the last minute that, that um, Glenn Pratt who was the visual effects supervisor on on that particular sequence uh, cracked it and, and managed to sort of put a f sine wave ripple through his fur that sl slowly grew out from the centre and worked his way to the edge of his ears and, and if he hadn't cracked that it wouldn't have been a quarter as funny so I'm very grateful for that. Everything's about Tony and the only reason no one's helping with your paper is because it's so late. This is the lovely sequence that we have at the uh, steam fair. This is based on Carter's steam fair who are a travelling vintage steam fair that go around England and, and we've brought in a few extra things from various other uh, heritage steam fair rides. The, the organ itself is one of the oldest organs in the world and, and we're very lucky to have that. And also in the big wide shot at the start, you can see it here, there's a, a, a roller coaster that I'm afraid is added later and that's actually the Coney Island roller coaster which if you think about taking that to pieces and putting it on a steam train seems slightly optimistic but it looks very nice in the background. And here we meet Phoenix Buchanan. Phoenix obviously is a, if you've seen the film, is a, a very vain, narcissistic, washed up old ham and uh, when we wrote the character we really thought of Hugh Grant from the outset we we always had him in our heads and it's a very dangerous thing to do because you never know whether you're actually going to get this actor that you dream of and if you got anyone else it would always feel very difficult so uh, I don't know Hugh or anything I, I, I'm a huge admirer of his I've loved him since Four Weddings and a Funeral and I've seen everything he's done and uh, but we had to sort of write this very awkward letter to his agent uh, well to Hugh via his agent going dear Mr Grant we have a character of a uh, 
uh, over the hill, uh, vain, narcissistic, uh, <laughs> uh, terrible, pompous actor who is also evil. And we thought of you. And uh, this it, was like a slightly nerve-wracking thing to do. But luckily, Hugh is the world's least vain person and has a very good sense of how ridiculous the acting industry is and was only too pleased to send him up. And his performance really is absolutely extraordinary. I think it's one of the great treats of the film. And he really took what we what we wrote and, and, and not only performed it exquisitely and made it better, but but wrote versions of the lines that are that are so extraordinary that you'd never have thought of. When when he introduces himself here, he goes, uh, I am tickled, the very deepest shade of shrimp. And you go, I think we wrote, I am tickled pink. And it's just a, a tiny indication into the hundreds and hundreds of enhancements that, that Hugh gave to the role. It really is an extraordinary bit of performance and an extraordinary bit of writing. And he's a very different shaped villain to to Millicent, who we had in the first film. Uh, Nicole gave this wonderful, uh, icy, brilliantly menacing performance, which I absolutely adored. But one of the things that I felt was a shame of the shape of that film or was that she only really got to spend time with Paddington in the third act. And it's really lovely when they, when they do coincide. But one of the things I wanted to do this time around was to find a way for Paddington to interact with our villain earlier. One of the things Paddington does in the stories, which is always so brilliant, is he's brilliant at puncturing pomposity, and he's he's uh, he's very good coming up against authority figures because he he means well and he does his best, but of course he absolutely uh, shows how ridiculous they are, and it felt like that could be a very lovely way for him to interact with the villain. So this was one of the very first moments that Simon and I thought of when we when we thought of creating this 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 narcissistic villain was that. Paddington could be on stage with him and really show him up. And, and there are quite a lot of pompous actors in, in the Michael Bond stories. There's a great one called Cecily Bloom, who was a, who was a bit of a model for Phoenix, but uh, um, we, 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 we recreated a character who, who was a bit younger and a bit more, uh, um, and had a bit more of a future to him. Uh, the name Phoenix actually comes from, uh, obviously it's the Phoenix Rises, is the famous expression, these birds that die and then rise up again. And we thought it'd be quite nice for, for our character to be called Phoenix because he he wants to to rise from the ashes as it were and um our first instinct was to um, call him Phoenix Bar. We had to come up with a surname because, of course, Paddington would never call anyone Phoenix. He called them Mr. Somebody. And there's a, a rather sort of shady actor's bar in Soho that Simon and I used to go to where Simon actually met his wife called the Phoenix Bar. And uh, so we, we thought it'd be quite funny to call him that. And then we realised you can't really name somebody after a pub. So we called him Buchanan. And uh, we rather liked the idea that he had Scottish ancestry. He's one of those people who's so posh and sounds incredibly in English, but claims to own about three quarters of Ad Aberdeenshire and uh, when we come to Phoenix's house later we'll see him dressed in a, uh, a kilt in, on the wall it's one of the most uh, ridiculous out of focus jokes in, in film history I think it's very expensive but uh, and we never quite managed to get the, the picture in, in focus but I, I'll show it to you later this window cleaning sequence again is very much based from the from the books. There's a there's a great scene uh, in, in the books and and the TV show uh, called a, a spot of decorating where Paddington tries to repaint his room, which has this sort of up down rope sequence. And we repurposed it for some window cleaning, but uh, uh, and and added the bucket on the head, which I don't think was in Michael Bond's story, but uh, it, it's probably the one of the things that's most precisely from the books in in the whole sequence. 
And it felt like a nice way of, of Paddington getting round the neighbours and, and doing some help. Uh, and making friends and and one of the things I suppose we wanted to do thematically was show that Paddington uh, does all these tiny acts of kindness that he never thinks are very important. Thematically, one of the big threads we were trying to do through the film was to that, that Paddington is living Aunt Lucy's dream and, and he really hopes that he's making her proud. And there's a line in, in the first letter home, just as he's going into Mr Gruber's, where he says, I do hope if you could see me, you'd be pleased, which is a straight quote from Michael Bond's books and, in fact, was uh, uh, was on the back cover of the programme of, of Michael Bond's funeral, which was very, a very moving event. And um, it really felt that that's what Paddington wants to do. He's, he's a little bear who wants to do his best and he wants to make Aunt Lucy proud. And he hopes that he's doing all right by her. And he does all these tiny acts of kindness, and, but he doesn't really realise they have any importance as far as he's concerned. He's just wiping somebody's windows. He, you know, he, he doesn't think twice. Of course, if he can do somebody a good turn, he'll do it. And that cycling sequence at the beginning was very much trying to show all the good deeds he does. Of course, he gives breakfast to the stray dog that needs it. Uh, and of course, he'll, he'll talk to the, the newspaper vendor and, and, and of course he'll say good morning to the colonel even though the colonel's a bit grumpy and this sequence is a way of showing how Paddington brings sunshine into people's lives through through these tiny acts of kindness which is uh, we, we, he might not realise they're important but hopefully the audience begin to realise that he does a great deal yes thank you Mr. Curry here, played by Peter Capaldi, is always one of the great treats of the film. He's uh, sort of he's the person who will never be won over by Paddington and, and never should be because some people's hearts are definitely closed to Paddington and Mr. Curry is, is very much one of them. We were trying to find a game for him to play uh, and we really loved the idea of him being this kind of self-appointed community policeman uh, because it's just the sort of thing that, that Mr. Curry would do, that he, he, he would, uh, you know, try to take a position of authority that he hasn't earned in any in any sense and so here's Paddington uh, cleaning Wolfie and again you feel he's not being paid for that he's doing it as a good turn and uh, and this is really where, where we see all the things he does this aquarium shot was done by uh, a different company called Rodeo who did all of our underwater Paddington for this film and uh, they were based in Canada and, and all of these these <laughs> those shots we worked on over Skype it was kind of a, a crazy way to work but uh, somehow they did they did a fantastic job and, and they came up with some really good jokes and and they were they were fantastic and here are our Calypso band. It's a very packed film, Paddington, and, and especially a Paddington student, especially off the first film that you sort of go, well, we have to have the Calypso band back. They're such a great uh, moment, they're such a great sort of texture in the first film, but there are so many characters with, with the neighbours and all of the people that we're going to meet in prison and the family and all of Paddington's friends that uh, we were really struggling in this kind of first act to make sure there was room for everyone. And uh, so the Calypso band just get a few moments on screen there, but they're they're very pleasing to see and I'm, I'm so happy to have them there. This is where everything changes for Paddington up, up till this point life's been going pretty well for him and uh, and this is the sort of snowball that I was trying to talk about with earlier that we were trying to generate narratively so so Paddington starts and, and his biggest challenge so far has been to to get a present for Aunt Lucy uh, and it lets us do some of the the sort of quintessentially Paddingtonian sequences like 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 the window cleaning in the barber shop and uh, this is where things begin to sort of get into second gear uh, that's Simon Farnaby's wife Claire Keelan who's also a brilliant actress uh, who plays the policewoman. We're very pleased to get her in. But it, it, hopefully it begins to feel like quite an organic next step. Uh, and again, it's sort of trying to find a slightly different shape of the film where you sort of feel that you can meet Paddington and, and he's being Paddington and he's in his life and there's not some great sudden earthquake, but it's more of a, a sort of slow ramping up. 
Here he is riding Wolfie. So Wolfie is an extraordinary creation. He is uh, sometimes real and he is sometimes made by our brilliant friends at Framestore. And I would challenge anyone to be able to spot the difference. They do this extraordinary work where they, they compare the way the real Wolfie runs and various other Irish wolfhounds run and, uh, and, and then try to match it perfectly uh, in, in their animation. It's a very different process from animating Paddington because Paddington has obviously very human expressions and very, uh, you know, he's very expressive. With a creature like uh, Wolfie, who's played by Percy in real life, you're trying to um, uh, make something that, that feels as much like a dog as possible. It's a very different set of skills. But they're so extraordinary when they know what things have to look like to be able to match it absolutely perfectly. So the shot we had just a few seconds ago where Paddington jumps on Wolfie across the canal boats, the first two canal boats are real and then the third one is entirely CG because the way Paddington and Wolfie interacted with that and the timing of it uh, needed to be absolutely perfect and it wasn't something we could do in camera but no one would ever be able to spot the difference. This was an amazing scene to, sequence to film at night on this beautiful part of Little Venice, right outside Michael Bond's house. Uh, and uh, he came down to visit us on set that day. And uh, I think he was uh, quietly astonished by <laughs> what we'd done to his neighbourhood. All of the little lights and stuff were put up. And uh, it really was a, an enormous uh, enterprise to, to film there. And we had uh, wire cams, which is a sort of uh, a camera on a zip line that you put across uh, to, to film Paddington jump across the water in about three different cranes and a camera on a boat and all of this extraordinary technology for a, a character that he wrote idly in 1958, just sat down and, uh, and, and wrote a, a, sh a short story without even really thinking twice about it and, and look what it spawned. This, I think, is one of the most uh, beautiful bits of animation in, in, in the film. Paddington is so expressive here and uh, I, I always feel that with these CG characters, uh, in a way, the, the bigger, more expressive things are sort of easier because you can be you can work on a on a broader palette and and they can be you know more crazy and and, and it sort of feels more cartoony whereas when you're doing something as simple as walking along the street uh, feeling your heart full of shame and looking around uh, you know just feeling embarrassed that's a very delicate nuanced bit of performance that a human actor would find very difficult and this is where we're incredibly lucky to have Ben Wishaw Ben is an amazing performer and we spend hundreds of hours together putting the Paddington performance together, not just uh, the verbals, but a shot like this where Paddington sighs and feels very sad. We absolutely filmed Ben and tried to learn from the way he performed and uh, and a huge amount of, of work goes into to being just expressive enough but not doing too much acting, which is which is always the key thing in moments like that. And it's another moment where you feel that the the, the technology can, can really be your friend. And and a shot like that, we, we sort of did a bit of performance. When, when you're building the performance of Paddington, you start with him just as a sort of grey blob and, and he he slowly comes to life and and the last kind of bit of you sort of that then you work out how he's going to physically move and the last pass is putting the fur on him and and you know the texture in his eyes and a shot like that where uh, there's a lot of moisture in his eyes because he's his eyes are full of tears because he's he's on the on the verge of crying but but not crying because Paddington probably wouldn't do that unless he was really an extremist uh, and and what we discovered from the animation was that we'd overacted the the bear because then when as soon as his eyes were full of tears, which is, of course, what Ben was doing when he was when he was giving us the reference. He didn't need to do nearly as much with his body and physically, so we 
went back and we reanimated the shot and we made it a much smaller performance because we discovered that his eyes could tell so much of the story. And that really is the level that you can, you can get to with Framestore in this animation. It really is extraordinary work. We're rich again. So here's Hugh in one of the many scenes where I felt slightly awkward having to ask him to perform it, the, uh, the dog food commercial. And this was something that we, we referenced in the first script, but we didn't film the first time around. I'm very lucky with uh, Studio Canal and, and Heyday Films who make the film that they, they are very understanding that a film like this is an evolution. And, and when you're filming it the first time around, of course, Paddington isn't there, and it's only quite late into the editing process that you, you feel Paddington. And, and so you learn things about the scenes much later in the day than you would in a conventional film where you have all the actors and, and you can see how things are working. And so we built into the schedule uh, extra shooting because I, I knew I was going to get things wrong the first time around. And, and one of the things that I got wrong was that we talked about these dog food commercials, but we never really saw them. And uh, it felt like such a missed opportunity. And uh, Hugh was incredibly game putting on the dog suit and uh, <laughs> doing the advert. And again, it was something he, he wrote uh, he wrote on. And, and uh, it's such a joy working with performers who are not only uh, great actors, but also sort of great comedians and comedy writers in their own right. And that's something we really try to do with the casting all the way across it. There, we, we use a lot of comedians because uh, I like working with people who are who are brilliant, such as Richard Ayuadi here, who's a, a very old friend. I was at university with him and we made uh, Garth Marenghi together, this uh, a, a comedy horror uh, series, was the, one of the first things that we both did. And uh, he's very good at making finding jokes where there where there are none. And uh, the here, here, and here was absolutely Richard that he felt that Paddington would have got uh, marmalade all round the shop over the course of it. Earlier, I was talking about Hugh and how much he brings to the script. That line there uh, is a classic example. When uh, we'd written this, the, the Les Miserables joke, and we're quite pleased with it. We sort of thought it was a, a sort of suitably terrible joke that Phoenix would have told. But uh, we'd written the line when the when the clerk of the court goes, "Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth?" The response in the script we'd written was, "Sincerely, I do." And on about the sixth take, Hugh uh, came over and said, "Well, there's something I might quite want to try." And I went, well, OK. And I was a bit anxious about it because, you you know, time is always short when you're filming and you, and you don't want to sort of lose a take for something. And the clerk says, uh, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth? And instead of solemnly, I do, Hugh goes, may my entrails be plucked forth and wound about my neck should I deceive? I do. And that's the kind of input you want from your actors. It's really funny and inventive and brilliant. And it just shows how much he brings to the, to the performance. And here he is sending poor Paddington to, to prison. Uh, this uh, sequence here, I, I really wanted this a sense of Paddington alone, this little bear alone in a big world. And that match cut came very late, that it's, it's the same bit of animation. It's the sort of thing you can do perfectly when you have an animated character, which is a very nice little join. Barbary home. Here we see Paddington going to the big house and uh, this was probably our, the biggest set that we built. Gary Williamson, our amazing set designer, who uh, is an extraordinary combination of sort of heightened uh, story but quality and, and reality. And, and this uh, prison is based on a, a jail in Kilmainham Jail in Dublin. It was inspired by that, but we, we built it for real or we built it up to the second story, as it were. 
and in that big wide shot that you just saw there, the the roof and all of that, it was designed by Gary but built in frame store. And again, it's one of those extraordinary things where I challenge anyone to see the join that behind the warden acted by Cobner there, that's all that's all fictitious, but this is all real. And and there we see Paddington lost and alone in his little cell and the, the light closing on him. This uh, shot here is a reference to the first film where, where Paddington climbs up the, the, the beams in the attic to go to sleep because he feels like a, he, it reminds him of his treehouse home. And, and we felt it was a nice little thing to reference here that, again, when Paddington feels at his most vulnerable and needy, he sort of reverts to his jungle self. And, uh, and looking out of the window here and writing the letter, uh, he, he sort of, his heart is beginning to go to Peru. There's a lovely the bit of lighting there that, that um, frame stores do so as the as the, uh, the the water droplets trickle down the window they actually cast shadows on his face as if he's crying and uh, this again is another extraordinary frame store creation so so Gary Williamson the designer and I would sit down and we would plan the jail and we would, we would build a model but then it's all taken over by by our friends at frame store who who bring it to life in the most extraordinary way possible and uh, and really let you create these extraordinary things and again with these posters some of them are real and some of them are uh, are added later that it, it was a bit too much of a, a job on the night to to get all those posters up and, the, and they really helped us out with these with these great big walls of posters it was actually quite a late sequence to come together that, that the posters we sort of had the family doing other things and it was one of those uh, various different things so Henry was going to the law library and, and Mrs Bird was trying to work out how, Padd how the thief had disappeared in a puff of smoke because of course the family are the only ones sticking by Paddington at this point but uh, it just felt like too much story and, and sometimes you just need to simplify so, so we did a very simple version where they're just where they're just putting up posters and it, it felt like it let the story progress at, at the speed you wanted it to this is one of the great treats of, of filming a, fil a film like Paddington's. You get to go to these extraordinary locations in, in London and, and Tower Bridge is somewhere I'd never even... I'd, I'd been over it in, in a car and on foot, but I'd never been inside even as a, as a, uh, as a tourist. And uh, to be up be able to you know crawl all over it for the night with with cameras and and sort of you know get them inside and outside and all over the place it is a real a real treat. Hugh's not actually walking along the rooftops at night there that's actually picked up in the studio later but uh, all of the rest of the filming was done on location and it's one of the, the great things about doing these films that you you get to go to these places you you otherwise wouldn't and there's uh, our prison so Hammersmith Bridge there on the right but uh, no prison there that that's all that's all added later and uh, here we get our first glimpse of, of Paddington's uh, fellow prisoners. Uh, again, you can you can see that. So the walkways are all real, and 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 the prison below it's real, but everything above them it, it is added later. And there's the amazing Tom Davis who plays T-Bone. That was a, he's a, a classic example of what, why you should cast brilliant comedians. Uh, it was a very small part with only two or three lines, but uh, he not only made every single one of them very funny, uh, he, you can really follow his character arc, and I think he, he's done a terrific job with, with very little. This joke again came quite late. We, I always wanted to have Paddington in in uh, a sort of stripy prison uniform. One of the great references for Paddington is Charlie Chaplin, and in modern times and many short films, Charlie ends up in in prison, and uh, he's always in this kind of very iconic sort of uh, striped uh, grey uniform and hat. And uh, it just felt Paddington really reminds me of Chaplin. He's he's a bit cheeky, but he's always trying for the best. And and not only as a character, but as a as a film, uh, I always tried to sort of 
channel the tone of Charlie Chaplin films. They've got a lot of heart and a lot of emotion, and, and I challenge anyone to watch The Kid without bursting into tears or City Lights. Uh, and and that, that mixture of, of humour, slapstick, and, uh, and, and emotion and stories, extraordinary Chaplin achievement. But uh, we also wanted to find a way of making the prison not feel too drab. One of the dangers of sending Paddington to prison uh, at a story level is you feel one of the, the pleasures of the film is it's set in this bright, colourful storybook world where nothing feels too real or too gritty. Uh, and um, so uh, and one of the things that David Heyman, our producer, was anxious about was that we shouldn't get into too drab a place. And so uh, it, it, was in the, it was only the second draft of the script where we suddenly thought, oh, well, maybe uh, Paddington could, could dye the costumes and suddenly it brings in this, this bit of pink. Because, of course, what Paddington's doing to the prison is he's, he's bringing in colour and he's bringing in life. So it does start as this very austere, grey place and bit by bit it'll get more colourful and more ridiculous as Paddington works his magic. And uh, it's very nice to be able to sort of solve a cosmetic problem of, of how does the prison not feel too gloomy with a joke. And uh, I think that the pink costume joke ends up being one of the funniest moments of the film. Do things to remember. This whole scene is is probably one of my my comic highlights of the film, and one of the first bits that Simon and I really felt that we we'd cracked uh, comically. We we really wanted to take Paddington out of his comfort zone for for a second film. Uh, Windsor Gardens is is such a perfect home for him, especially Thirty Two Windsor Gardens, where where Paddington lives with the Browns. And and what I was talking about sequels and not wanting to reboot. We didn't want the Browns to not believe in Paddington. It felt like Paddington had won the Browns over in the first film. He was now a genuine part of the family. He's called Paddington Brown, and they are never not going to believe in him. That was the lesson of the first film, and we didn't want to unpick that. So we needed to find a, a new group of uh, people who who Paddington could could change and, and affect and, 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 uh, and a world where he would feel less comfortable and less at home. So instead of destroying Windsor Gardens, we took Paddington out of Windsor Gardens, and that's obviously the challenge of the film to get home. And this is where he meets uh, Knuckles McGinty. Uh, Brendan's performance is one of the absolute highlights of the film for me. He's, he's extraordinary. And the work he does, I think, is especially difficult because you need to remember that Paddington is not there on the day. We do our best to help him, but there, there is a, 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 an actress called Lauren who stands in, who's roughly the size of Paddington, and there's an actor called Gus Brown who is channeling Ben's performance. But generally, uh, Brendan is acting to a bit of tape put on the stick. And I think it's very difficult, especially in these heightened comic scenes, to hold on to the the humour and the and the tone and the and the sense of the movie when you might have me on my knees talking to Brenda, but really he's acting to to space a lot of the time, and he does an absolutely extraordinary job because none of the punchlines are there. You sort of have half the jokes and, and you're missing the other half, so so you can't really get too much confidence as to whether it's working or not. And it's a huge leap of faith for Brendan to to believe that it's going to work, and 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 a huge leap of faith for me and the cameramen and and. And all of the all of the departments to try and put the scene together when we're cutting from Brendan saying one line to what is ultimately an empty shot until Paddington's in it. But uh, he's still able to give moments of performance like that, where his face is so extraordinarily still. And this moment of eye-to-eye -eye contact with them, I, I think, is a really great bit of performance. And and you would just never believe that Brendan was not talking to Paddington at this stage. 
what is this? One of the great things the animators do is, is that they're able to sort of bring Paddington into the scene as well. So the little flinch he gives there as, as Knuckles turns back to Paddington is, uh, is, um, is just the sort of detail that really helps them feel like they're absolutely in the same place and, and really helps. The knuckles on the knuckles joke was something we we had written, but but Brendan had this very strange idea, which really made us laugh in rehearsals that he would put his fists the wrong way round. We liked the idea that knuckles wasn't such a brilliant uh, speller, and uh, but uh, Brendan liked the idea that he'd done it in a mirror and got the two the two hands the wrong way round. <laughs> and uh, what I think is so great about his performance is he doesn't act it in any sense, thinking that he's done it wrong. He just completely believes it and he owns it, and he's still super confident. But uh, of course, he's he's messed up entirely. This joke here, is spitting on the hand, comes from a film that I worked on with Simon uh, about ten years ago called Bunny and the Bull, which uh, I can almost guarantee that whoever's listening to this will not have seen because hardly anyone has seen it. And uh, but we had this joke that we really liked, where uh, 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 somebody spits on the hand and the other person misunderstanding spits on the same hand. And uh, so we slightly stole from our own work, and uh, we're waiting for anyone to pick up on that. But so far, so far they haven't. <laughs> Here's more of our lovely animation work from the people at, uh, at Passion. Uh, I love this pencil-drawn animation so much. And the idea was it was Mary's vision of uh, th th this is the sort of drawings that she does and, and this is how she sees the world as this sort of adventure story. Her character is, is looking for an adventure and manages to find it. Sally is a, a huge treat to, to work with. It's one of the signs of how extraordinary our cast is that I haven't mentioned uh, Sally yet, who is uh, a dear old friend and also one, I really think one of the best actresses in the world and when I was talking about what Brendan does about feeling Paddington's performance there are moments I'll come back to later where where Sally is extraordinary at that and it's a very difficult thing to do not only to hold your own performance in your head but somebody else's and the way she reacts to something that isn't there is, is truly brilliant. This is Dame Eileen Atkins playing Madame Kosliba. Another example of how you, you you can sometimes get what you wish for. We we had she has about three lines on on camera. There was actually a very short scene at the end of this that we ended up cutting, which was just another couple. But when you sort of go, well, we got a very very small appearance. Is there any way Eileen Atkins would want to do it? You you expect the answer to be no, but she'd very much enjoyed the first film and, and was very happy to come and play in Paddington's universe. And it's the sort of thing that makes you feel extremely grateful. This is all shot on location in a Spiegel tent that we had uh, put up at the same time as, as the fairground. It's, a, it's an old travelling performance tent that, that they would have had in the old days. And, and one of the things that we're always trying to do in, in a Paddington film is to sort of uh, keep lots of different textures in the film so it doesn't always kind of feel like the same uh, universe. And uh, so we, we love a flashback or a cutaway or, or something that sort of just disrupts the kind of linear narrative that you normally expect. And, and this is a classic example of being able to do a sort of nice scene set in the 1930s and... It was really something that we, we had a, a huge desire to do for all sorts of cosmetic reasons, but also because it just makes the film feel a bit richer and, and more textured than it might otherwise. Sometimes I feel that uh, especially family films can feel very literal and linear and you're living in one universe. And, and one of the things we try to do with Paddington is, is make it feel a bit more storybooky. There's, a, there's an inherent 
unnaturalism to having a talking animal. Obviously, they, they, they don't exist. And so one of the things we always tried to do was not only make Paddington feel as realistic as possible, but make the rest of the world feel like it exists in Paddington's universe. You know, I, I don't think a sort of a, a Ken Loach London would work with a talking animal working, walking down the street. It, it needs to feel more heightened and more storybooky. And those other textures and those other flavours really, really help with that. And we've got another example coming up here where uh, where we see what's, what's going on in, in Hugh Bonneville's mind, uh, the, the Henry Brown's mind, rather, uh, as, as he sort of laments the passing of his youth. And uh, it's so nice to be able to have all these cutaways. And in this little sequence, we, we sort of had hand-drawn animation, a, a flashback to the 1930s, a, a vision of what uh, Henry used to be like. And, and they're sort of great fun to direct and they're great fun to act. And uh, I think it's really nice to sort of enrich the film in this sort of slightly unusual way. One of the hero references for me was uh, Amelie by Jean-Pierre Jeunet. He's a, he's a great director and, and brilliant at adding all these little flavours that tell you about characters and, and, and break you out of the, the contemporary narrative without, without spoiling the tone of the film. They add to the, the richness and the texture of the film and that's certainly what we were trying to do here. So this is one of the, the saddest things that we had to cut were, were um, Hugh Grant's vocal warm-ups, which uh, he, he did with great aplomb. But uh, we, we felt that we were getting away from Paddington for too long, but he has some lovely uh, uh, improvised uh, bits of acting business. Hugh is the last actor in the world I would imagine would ever actually do a vocal warm-up. Uh, so he has great fun sending it up. And here he is as a sexy nun. This was a very, a very tricky outfit to get right because we felt that uh, Hugh would... Uh, Phoenix's character would absolutely not just want to be a, a regular nun but would want to be quite attractive because he's so vain but of course nuns don't wear a huge amount of makeup and, and you start going how do we make Hugh Grant look like a, a, a sexy nun and uh, we can make him look like a nun but sexy is a bit of a stretch when you're a, a bloke in a dress and uh, so the beauty mark is a, a really nice way of doing that and uh, something we came up with with Hugh. After you. Here we have more of, of, of Brendan's extraordinary relationship with Paddington and I really think this scene is a, it's a huge testament to Brendan's leap of faith because it really is something where Knuckles needs to exist as this pillar and of kind of solidity and he's very much trying to maintain his dignity and his hard man persona as Paddington sort of very slowly winds him up. And it's another scene that, again, I, I was very keen to do uh, from the beginning where, where Paddington encounters a, a, an authority figure and slowly pricks their pomposity. I mean, uh, Knuckles isn't pompous in the same way that Phoenix is pompous, but he has the same uh, false facade that isn't his true self. And uh, uh, he does an extraordinary job in, the, in this armchair uh, and Paddington moving around him. One of my favourite little jokes that we have is is all these newspapers running through the through the film, and there are. Uh, they're a very sort of labour-intensive thing to do. They're on screen for about 0.1 seconds, but you have to write every word on them, obviously. So there's so many great jokes. I love the get-out-of-jail-free card, and, of course, the newspaper itself is called Hard Times, which is a, a joke for Dickens fans, so that's good 27 people there enjoying that. Uh, but um, every line in those in those articles I'm very, I'm very pleased with, but nobody ever really sees them, which is a, which is a great shame. One at a time, then. Right. One at a time. Fine. 
And here, Brendan's going to sit down and we'll have another little glimpse into the newspaper here in, in the very next shot. We love this sequence of Paddington winding them up with the, with the various juicy oranges and, and Brendan having to slowly lower the thing. So both of those jokes, Spider Murphy, that's reference to Jailhouse Rock and the terrible dry cleaning pun on the right-hand side. But just Brendan's eyes moving across here as you sense his tension rising is really a great bit of performance, especially when you just remember there was no Paddington there. At a time! I'm sorry, I'm finding this... We're about to come into the hard stare, which is Paddington's secret weapon. And uh, one of the things I always think that's very interesting about the hard stare is uh, it's for people who've forgotten their manners. And so it works on some people, not others. A scene that we cut from the first film was a scene where Paddington uh, gave Millicent a hard stare and Nicole gave this very delicious reply, uh, stare all you like, Bear, it won't have any effect on me. Because, of course, Millicent had no manners to remember. She was rotten through and through. But uh, you know that this is the first first time I think you'd begin to think that Knuckles might have some good in him because he uh, uh, he, he, he feels the embarrassment of a hard stare and he knows that he's be behaved badly. And uh, it's a great thing that, that Brendan does here in his performance, that you, you really believe the um, that he's he has some decency and hu some humanity in him and it's got, it's got really buried. And, and one of the great qualities Paddington has, of course, is looking for the good in people. And, and that's something that Simon Farnaby was very keen on, that, that, that um, Paddington looks for the good in people and finds it not just in, in where you might expect to look, around the streets and the neighbourhoods of, of lovely Windsor Gardens, but, you know, in, in absolutely everyone. And it was very important to us making the film that there were no uh, truly, truly bad people, that there really is good in everyone. And, uh, and certainly this journey here that Paddington goes on of uh, discovering the good in Knuckles and discovering his vulnerability and discovering the fact that he actually wants to make good marmalade is, is a, an amazing thing. That shot there is the sort of thing that looks very simple of Paddington throwing Knuckles oranges. But of course it's incredibly complicated because when Brendan holds the orange it needs to be a real orange, it's not a, a computer-generated orange. But when Paddington's tossing it over to him, it is completely computer-generated because Paddington is not there and, and, and not real. So, so we had our brilliant clown, Javier Marzan, he, he comes on set with us and, and he'll do all of those moments of physical interaction. And he's really useful for the performers, especially Brendan playing Knuckles. So, so when we were squirting ketchup, and, and mustard on him earlier. Javier would do all of that and, and uh, occasionally Pablo as well when there was a bit of animation. But, but it's really uh, this combination of people say so there's somebody doing the physical interaction but uh, there's still a huge leap of imagination. Bren's bit of acting right there where he looks like he really wants the marmalade to be good I think is, is, is really lovely and, and you feel this bit of pride beginning to emerge in him and, and sense that uh, he might claim that he's no good at cooking and doesn't want to do it and doesn't care but actually he wants to be, to be loved like we all do. And here is my glorious co-writer, Simon Farnaby. You may remember him from Paddington 1, where he also played Sleazy Guard, a.k.a. Barry. And uh, he wasn't going to be in the film for a long time. People often ask whether we, we, whether we wanted him to be in it. And the, the truth is, we just wrote this as a fairly generic scene with a security guard, and we felt it was a bit boring, and it was very late in the day that we suddenly we went, this scene's, this scene's very functional, it's, it's just a bit of plot. Uh, how can we make it more fun? And then we had this idea of, of putting Simon back in it and, and bringing Barry back and uh, having thought of that of course as Simon's playing the character you suddenly give it a huge amount of thought and uh, 
We really liked the idea that Barry had left the Geographers Guild having fallen in love with uh, Hugh Bonneville's character and been betrayed by him and that uh, he's, uh, he's had a tough six months which he's taken time off and, and eventually somebody's gone, come on Barry, it's time to get back on the security game and there's an opening at St Paul's Cathedral and, uh, and so uh, he's, he's finally got this job at St Paul's Cathedral and hopes that nothing can really go wrong, it's, it's just nuns and then finally he sees another man in drag who he falls hopelessly in love with and I don't think Barry's ever going to be anyone who realises that he might have a bit of a, a, a running uh, track record with uh, attractive older men called Hugh uh, wearing dresses. It's another example of an extraordinary landmark to film at. St Paul's Cathedral must be one of the 10 most famous buildings in the world and, and you can't believe that they're ever going to let you film there. And all of this was shot on location. We had to do both sequences over 24 hours, which is very fast by filming sequences, but you are asking a, a, a major world landmark to close down for you. And we ne never in a million years thought that they would say yes. Uh, but um, our location manager, Jonah Coombs, is, is brilliant and, and, and can work endless miracles. And uh, we wrote them a letter and, and about a week later, I, I said, how's it going? Is there any way they're actually going to say yes? Uh, and uh, he went, well, the dean turns out to be a fan of marmalade. And it's a, a great example of how Paddington opens doors for you. For, filming is always quite a disruptive process wherever, wherever you go. Sometimes you're asking a building clo to close down. But even when you're in the street, you're quite often having to ask cars to stop or people not to walk past or do you mind not going into your house for a while? And especially with residents of Windsor Gardens, which is a double for Chalcot Crescent in, in, in London. Uh, we were asking them for about 10 days not to park in their street and wait for us while they, they do this. And it's a huge amount of disruption. And I always feel very lucky that we're working on a Paddington film because quite often people go, what, what's this for? And you go, it's Paddington. And often then that melts the grumpiest hearts and go, oh, I love Paddington, he's such a sweet bear. And, and it's the power of Paddington that he has over their childhood. I think we'll have to tell that story even if one day I'm making a kind of evil slasher film with lots of gory violence. I'll just pretend we're making Paddington and it'll bring out the good in people. So Paddington can bring out the good not just in fictional characters but in, in real uh, Londoners as well. Again, this is a, a bit of performance I, I love from Brendan, seeing his vulnerability. And it's a great juggling act he has between this, this hard man and, the, and this very, you know, vulnerable little boy. And what Brendan does here is, is again, what these great actors can do is, is they lift what you've written in the script. And, and there's one little line in the scene we just had where, where we, when he's sort of kicking off and throwing pots around, where we wrote, uh, my father always said I'd amount to nothing, and he was right. And we really wrote it more or less as a joke. It was a kind of sort of what we thought was a funny thing for this kind of big bruiser to kind of uh, say when he, when he was kicking, you know, getting really cross with himself. But I think the way Brendan delivers the line and the humanity he brings to the role makes this character that could have so easily been a sort of cardboard cutout cartoon hard man, you know, like a sort of silent comedy thug. And uh, he really makes him extraordinarily humane. And there's Tom Davis doing exactly the same thing with this uh, brilliant line about a strawberry panna cotta with a pomegranate glaze. It's another example of how his his tiny little arc in, in just sort of three lines, he's really uh, he he's he's really brought that character to life. 
This is one of the set pieces that was hardest to execute and I'm probably most pleased with. We really wanted a kind of visual flourish where we saw how Paddington changed the, the prison and, and it's probably one of the bits of directing I, I, I'm most proud of along with the pop-up book because they're incredibly complicated to, to execute. So the, the way we go about doing something like this is, is, is you need to film it literally hundreds of times with all the different uh, elements in place. So, so we had this extraordinary camera called a motion control rig where, where you can program a camera move uh, and it will um, uh, it will be able to repeat it dozens and dozens of times. So uh, this 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 shot is is literally dozens of different takes all stitched together and all changing. So uh, every time a, a cake is added to a tray, that was another pass, or or the people appeared, or the or the you know the, you're adding um, bunting or dancers or plant pots, and, uh, and and an awful lot of this is done in camera. And they're three different sets, and it was three different camera moves. In fact, four different camera moves, uh, and it's incredibly complicated. But uh, I think it worked out really brilliantly. And Framestore did an amazing job enhancing it as well. And and so, so much that, that, that we sort of started with in camera, they were able to add to and develop. And, and that whole banner is built by them and, uh, and, and lots of the sort of elements of the food. And again, it's one of those shots that sort of looks fairly simple. Well, it, it looks quite simple, but it also takes about a year to execute. And, and, and the work they do and, and the sort of dedication they have is extraordinary. Andy Kind, who was the visual effects supervisor on it, really took it as a sort of personal mission. And he'd worked on the first film with us. It was our, our uh, visual effects supervisor on that. And, and um, it was really his baby. And uh, I just think he did a brilliant job. This was a really lovely scene for me to, to direct because uh, it features Cal McChrystal, who, who I mentioned earlier, who's the, the physical comedy uh, director who, who taught me how to direct. And uh, he plays our uh, resident criminal uh, MP here, who's going to pop up in the right-hand corner of, of the scene. And, and this, this window sequence here with all these heads popping in is, is something of a, a, a trademark of Cal's work. And it was, it was very good of him to let me steal his joke. There he is, popping up from under the counter. And... Uh, uh, and and um, uh, to to work with him, and I think there was a bit of a surprise on the day because uh, there were lots of people who were popping in, and and I don't think anyone really knew who Cal was apart from me, and I, I was relentlessly asking him for his advice and, and how it should work, and I think everyone was going, why does Paul keep talking to that extra? What, what what's he? What, what's why is he has he gone mad to be asking advice from just anyone who happens to be passing? I had to explain that Cal's one of the best directors in the world, and that what he said was pretty much the word of God. He has two lines and gets two laughs, and uh, I think that's a pretty good, pretty good strike rate from Cal there. Hugh's bit of performance here is is exquisite. It's probably the one of the best jokes in the film, and the way he looks up here and says "gentlemen" is an extraordinary bit of performance. He has a great ability to be able to hold himself still for just the right amount of time, and it's it's something I really learned from Cal about comedy performance. This idea of fixed point is incredibly important. That you just you can just hold a perform a, a, a physical pose, and the audience will read into it all of your anxiety but it's an incredibly difficult thing to get right as an actor and uh, and Hugh really is a past master at it here is one of the tricky things that we have to do is, is, is these sort of very quick change of tones we're going from something very heightened and very sort of comedic and stylized, especially with Charlie Rumble there leaning in at a, a, at a sideways angle into a, into a bit of pathos. And, and that's really trying to sort of strike that balance of sort of comedy and, 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 and sadness that, that hopefully this film has. And uh, it, it's, it's a bit of a sort of sudden switcheroo. 
This sequence, we really wanted to show how the, the community have missed, have missed Paddington. And uh, one of the, the sad things that we, we lost from the film, which was a great sadness to me, was the Miss Peters, who were, were two ladies uh, who, who were part of the neighbourhood. And, uh, and sadly, there were just too many neighbours and, and we felt we just had too many characters, but they, they're there in spirit. And, and I always think that Dr Jeffrey, when he, when he uh, touches his hat there, he's looking over at the Miss Peters. And, and he, although you don't need to know they're there that that's i know who he's looking at and uh, i feel their presence in the film and we'll see them later on uh, but just in in out of the corner of your eye and it's, it's one of the terrible things that occasionally happens in films when lovely things have to go for the greater good and it's a real sadness an example of how how wolfy you can never tell the difference between the real wolfie is when he walks into that previous shot he's a real dog and when he barks and turns around and runs away he is made entirely by uh frame store and it's just just an extraordinary uh, ability they have. Sadly, the real Wolfie, acted by Percy, uh, isn't too nimble anymore. They they they, they get quite old, uh, and Percy's quite an old dog, and he doesn't run so fast. So if uh, Wolfie's doing any physical acting, you know that's not him. Here is Phoenix in the kilt. You can see at the back of the the shot there, and uh, that that's the the painting that we we had commissioned uh, to, of of him standing, sort of like the the monarch of the Glen, with his with his foot up on one rock, and uh, it's it's a great show. All of the Phoenix's house is of course filled with photographs of uh, of, of Phoenix in all of his his past roles. And uh, it's one of the, one of those awkward conversations that you have to have with uh, with an actor again, where you sort of go, um, Hugh, we need two or three hundred pictures of you in previous performances. Do you have anything? And he went and dug out all these photos. They are not, I hasten to add, all printed up and put around his house. Although I've never been to his house, they could well be. But uh, he came in with all of these things and various sort of charcoal sketches and and like paintings that he'd been sent by fans over the years. So we everywhere you look in the house, there's just endless. Just on the left there by the door, there's another oil painting of him that he somehow had. So I'm not entirely sure where all these things came from. And maybe maybe Hugh Grant's house is indeed as creepy as Phoenix's, but uh, I, I somehow doubt it. Uh, but it's very lovely that he's got this career. And for people who've been fans of Hugh over the years, you can see all the all the different characters he's paid, played in all the different films. and uh, And it's a real treat. This was one of the, the first ideas that we had about Mary's drawings and how she sees the world through her drawings. She's, of course, drawn the, the story of the, the thief and she sees the story at Gruber's as a, as a kind of pencil sketch and she's looking for this adventure and suddenly she she has this vision of, of, of Hugh and, and sees all these drawings go over the top of him, all the various different disguises that he's had. And it's one of those things where, again, so much work goes into these things of what are all the kind of theatrical characters that he might have dressed up to, to break into all these different places and if you're incredibly bored you can look at the the, the the notice board behind Mary in this scene and see he's dressed up as a policeman and, and an aristocrat and a, and a kind of a Viking warrior and uh, you know a, a beef eater and uh, all, all the various different disguises that we felt he could have played in a, a play and then used those costumes to, to break into various London landmarks but it was a, a very tricky thing trying to to work out all the all the different things he could do and it's it's an example of the, the detail that goes in, which is probably only noticed by about three people who, who happen to press pause on their DVD. 
Coming up is one of Julie Walters' great lines in, in the film, which I, I was very pleased about how, how evil actors are. And uh, I rather like that this <laughs> very well-spirited film uh, basically works on the assumption that actors are genuinely evil. You tend to believe that everything Mrs Bird says and it's just presented as absolute fact without a kind of flicker of joke in her eye. She just looks like she's breaking this terribly sad news to, to the rest of the family. And uh, it's just a great bit of performance. And again, one of those extraordinary actresses that you can't believe you get to work with, the, the legend of Julie Walters uh, playing uh, uh, such a small part. But um, Julie's extremely funny and, and, and always talks about how she's played a lot of drudges and uh, Mrs Bird's her Scottish drudge. So uh, it, it's a great role for her. Knuckles? Got a proposition for you. This scene initially started as, as everyone um, sat in the kitchen and, and, and it was a scene that we actually filmed in the kitchen and it's one of those, one of the scenes where I filmed it and, and decided I really didn't like the tone of it. We had, we had, um, we spent a couple of days on the on the first shoot filming the, uh, a quite a complicated scene based around the kitchen where, where Knuckles had, had built them the model of the prison himself, or rather Spoon had. You see you see Spoon uh, building a windmill out of matches the first time we meet him uh, in the canteen, which has then grown. And and by the time they plotted their escape, he'd built a, a whole model of the, the prison out of matchsticks, and we, we were going to use that as, as our model for the, for the breakout. And it just felt like it had the wrong tone as the scene. It was too jokey and it was too colourful. And, and we really wanted the tone of the film to be changing at this point. And it's really the sort of thing you learn in the, in the editing room, that this is the part of the movie where Paddington's slowly beginning to lose hope. And, and having turned the prison into this beautiful, colourful, amazing landscape, uh, we wanted to remind people he is still in prison, he still misses his home and it's still a bit gloomy. And the pipe scene felt like a much uh, better tonal match for that. And uh, it, it was one of the things we did in the reshoot and it was much simpler and much better and let me send a camera along a pipe which is a pleasure for any director. This is, was one of the most uh, complicated set pieces to put together. This is uh, the break-in sequence and uh, there was a, it's about 20 different scenes and different locations and, and they're, all very, they're all very bitty. And uh, you get to work with Joanna Lumley, which is a great treat, and uh, hear her say nice buns, which was a, a very strange treat. And, uh, uh, but th there's so many different things going on and um, we were very worried about how it would fit together, whether, whether it's going to be funny and whether it's going to, to hold water but actually the way it ended up in the film is almost exactly as we wrote it we, we somehow cracked it at script stage which is very unusual especially for a Paddington film but also probably because Paddington isn't in it and you can you can see on the day how these scenes are working and you know all of the performances and you can get the rhythm of it and uh, it, it actually ended up being if not straightforward at least much more much more achievable that, than we thought it would be where we're filming this here this is uh, this is at Hatfield House which is a, a place we've been to, to to film before this extraordinary uh, um, old mansion house in, in, in Hertfordshire near London and um, uh, it's where we filmed the Geographers Guild in the, in, the, in the first film and it was very nice to come back and use what used to be one of their estate offices here, a rather amazingly wood panelled glorious room uh, to, to pass as an, as an agent's office and the exteriors in, in Clerkenwell. So here we have uh, one of the first red phone boxes. They're going to uh, play a key role in the film later on. And uh, it'll sound ridiculous to, to older listeners, but, uh, of course, no-one uses a, a telephone box. And a, a huge part of the, 
humanity has grown up having never used a telephone box anymore. And one of the most uh, dispiriting things I had to do in the, in the course of shooting this film was to explain to Sam and Maddie, who play Jonathan and Judy, exactly how a telephone box worked, because it was not something they'd ever used. Uh, and I realised that we needed to introduce the idea of a telephone box for, for viewers who, who, who were aware of what they do. They probably know there's a telephone in them, but they don't know kind of the rules of them. And, and later in the, in the film, we're going to, we're going to use the, the rules of opening the door and the light coming on uh, for kind of dramatic effect, as, as Paddington says farewell to the, to the Browns for what he thinks is the last time. And, uh, and so we really wanted to have everyone knowing how these, these things worked in the first place. A great example of Hugh's improvisation here, Mr. and Mrs. Bottycheek. That was absolutely uh, not written. We wrote, uh, oh, thank you very much, as if he'd, he'd taken the buns pun seriously. And, uh, and that's the sort of thing that, that Hugh adds. Sally and, and the other Hugh, Hugh Bonneville, I think have a, have a lovely relationship through the film. It was something we really uh, built in the first film and it's very nice to be able to come back and, and meet this sort of slightly bickering couple. And uh, uh, it, they have such a great chemistry on, on screen and, and uh, it, it's very nice to be able to, to build those things. One of the things in a, in a sequel that you, you, you get, which is, is incredibly helpful, is, is a lot of the audience know the first film and, and even if they don't, uh, we know the the first film we know the spirit and we know these characters so often when you're revisiting and and you, you know how Hugh and Sally and Sam and Maddie work together how they act what their voices sound like it, it can really help you sort of get two steps ahead with the writing that if you know Hugh Bonneville's going to be delivering a line you probably write it in a slightly different way than when you were just writing a, a line for for Henry and and Sally here is just terrific her her sense of uh excitement. Again, this is an example of something we found with Hugh on the day. We had a fairly te tedious scene where he realised that he'd uh, forgotten his wallet and, and turned back and we only had about 20 minutes to film the scene. We were, we were losing the light, as they, as they say. It, it was getting dark and so we had to film incredibly quickly and uh, Hugh and I both felt that, he, that um, a phoenix would, wouldn't care about his wallet but he might care about something else so uh, his, his cravat it was and uh, it, it, <laughs> I think it was quite an embarrassing scene for for Hugh to have to, to film in the middle of the public because it's actually quite a busy high street and there he is dressed like an absolute uh, buffoon and uh, having to do these, these very ridiculous things. This is another example of, uh, of Hugh, Hugh Bonneville's great fixed point, that his head goes absolutely still as he stares around. He's not looking around, he just absolutely freezes. And it's, it's a great thing that he's able to do. It, it, it's all, all the way through. They're so precise, both he and Sally, and, and it's great. This scene that we have coming up where where uh, Henry and Mary are, are, are caught by Phoenix in their house was, was probably the, the nicest thing to, to film in the entire scene, uh, in the entire film. Uh, one of the tricky things about not having Paddington there is you have an anxiety as, as, as a director as to whether the scene is going to work. You're trying to imagine what he's going to do, but you're not going to see it for six to 12 months and uh, a scene where you've got three extraordinary comic performers really they probably are three of my favorite comic performers in the world all together all working the absolute peak of their powers and timing everything immaculately that there really is no greater pleasure for a director that is an example of Hugh being brilliantly still again. It's such a perfectly controlled 
performance and uh, I really love uh, what what Sally does in this scene it's it, she doesn't have many lines in this scene but Sally is so brilliant at being present in the scene with just little looks and little glances and what she does here is such great comic performance uh, from, from the second she's revealed behind the curtain I really think she's just exquisite the way she's sort of checking the window what a ridiculous way to check whether it's serious and her little laugh here is is just absolutely delightful and uh, she gives a really fantastic uh, slightly awkward look as, as she leaves the room that you'll see coming up in in just a second which is just purely brilliant there the little ooh as she as she <laughs> as she leaves the house and uh, everything she does is is just divine we're, we're so lucky to have her in this role. We always thought of this as the kind of middle-class break-in that everyone's sort of too posh and ridiculous to kind of point out that you've clearly broken into the house and, and this sort of very kind of awkward kind of middle-class anxiety that follows. All the ghosts of the avenue. Yeah, but it was close, wasn't it? This is a lovely bit of performance from Hugh here as he talks to all the all the mannequins and it's a it's a very tricky thing to do he's sort of doing all these different voices and and for all of his his glories as a comic performer Hugh isn't sort of famous for being a, a, a sort of chameleon he's not one of those actors who you associate doing lots of different accents and lots of different things and he absolutely did it all perfectly every single time it's it's an amazing skill I, I just think it's a, a skill he hasn't had a chance to to use in 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 much of his work where he's sort of often played somebody a bit like uh, you know Hugh a sort of rather lovely uh, young man and uh, it's very nice to be able to see him do do other things here we are at the police station this is the the Royal College of Surgeons it's a really extraordinary building that we we did have a few other scenes set in the police station and it all boiled down to to this in the end we we had a bit more of a sense of the police closing in on Paddington in the third act and and again it's one of those things that you discover as the, as the film comes together in the editing room that it needs to be streamlined a little bit and, and stripped down and, and it needs to find its shape and it's one of the lovely things about making film that it's an organic process and and you learn things as you go along this sequence is i think some of the best uh cg i've i've ever seen it's not there are no spaceships exploding off the shoulder of orion it's really just incredibly nuanced performance given by a bear that is absolutely not there and i think the expression in his eyes and the stillness is so extraordinary and Little details like the lighting there, where you can see that pinprick of pinprick of light in his eyes after the lights have gone off. It's so extraordinary and very evocative. And this shot here, as he imagines himself not in the family, as this single tear trickles down his nose, I think it's just unbelievable when you think how recently fur was impossible and then water was impossible and that they can do something like that that is so still and so simple. And uh, in, in my uh, opinion, this really is one of the, the greatest bits of, of non-human performance that, that I've ever seen. This scene was something I, I wanted to do for a while. This idea of uh, uh, that Paddington, when, when he's really feels most lost and most alone, still thinks of Peru. And it's a very important part of his character. He's sort of very associated with London, but it's so important to remember that he is from Peru, that he is from the, the depths of the Amazon rainforest and, and that Aunt Lucy is still there. And this was one of those moments where 
Aunt Lucy plays such an important part at the end of the film that we, we needed to keep her alive and present in the film all the way through. And so these little scenes like here where he imagines sort of hugging Aunt Lucy, well, if the Browns have forgotten him, then there's still Aunt Lucy. And, and what would she say? That this is what he thinks. He's always trying to live by Aunt Lucy's rules. He's living Aunt Lucy's dreams, but he's also living Aunt Lucy's rules. And, uh, you know, he, he tries to follow her advice and put it into practice, and it normally stands him in good stead. And, and we felt like the saddest thing that Paddington could have was to stop believing in Aunt Lucy's rules and, and to begin to think that perhaps it doesn't work like that, perhaps that kindness and politeness and, and trying to do the right thing doesn't really help. And he is going to have to break the law and he is going to have to escape from prison and, and he has been forgotten. Of course he hasn't, but he doesn't realise that. And that felt like a very sad thing. One of the... The, the, the things we were most trying to do in the film was to, to for, for Paddington and his personal emotional journey was to to challenge these rules. We 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 were looking for a kind of a shape of a story which which wasn't the same as the first film. In the first film, he didn't believe he could fit in in London, but then he discovered he could. And uh, in the second film, we really wanted to ch challenge his politeness, which feels like a, a such key part of Paddington's character. And one of the great references here was Frank Capra and his, his films from the 1930s, especially Mr. Smith Goes to Washington and Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. There's bits of It's a Wonderful Life in there, but, but really those, those, those 30s classics were the, were the hero reference for, for Paddington and his journey. Though Frank Capra often takes a sort of small-town hero with kind of naive, old-fashioned values of decency and politeness and puts them in the big, cynical workplace. So, so Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, he, go, he gets involved in politics and, uh, and, and the film test whether those decent old-fashioned values can withstand the cynicism of, say, Washington or Mr Deeds Goes to Town. It, it sort of takes him into the world of high finance and high society. And... Um, uh, they're extraordinary journeys. Paddington isn't a conventionally flawed hero like most films have. He's he's a very good-natured little bear. And when we started thinking about Frank Capra as a model for how to, to write this film, a, a lot of the plot began to fall into place that we decided we wanted to take him into a, a world where uh, kindness and decency didn't always have a good effect and uh, and, and um, people were cynical and didn't believe it in manners and, and, and goodness. And uh, that's really where the, the prison part of the story began to come together and... Um, and Paddington's emotional arc, so that he doesn't have to be a bad bear at any point. He's always well-intentioned, he's always trying to be uh, kind and polite, but he still has something to learn. And, and what he learns in this film is, is, is really that uh, Aunt Lucy was right all along and the kindness is incredibly powerful. And, uh, but at this stage, he's, uh, he's beginning to question that. This whole escape sequence we sort of wanted to do as a model. We had a doll's house in the first film and it felt like a lovely texture. And one of the nice things about a sequel is you sort of have a, a kit of parts that you can use and you go, well, we've done this sort of uh, cross-section device and it's so lovely in the first film. We wanted to have another another go at it. And we were sort of trying to find a home for it and it felt like doing a prison break that way was a nice way of doing it. There have been a million prison breaks in, in film history, but I've not seen one set in a doll's house before and it, it felt like a very nice way of doing something slightly different. That guard we passed there as we as we climbed up is performed by the brilliant Tim Key, who's one of the the uh, great stand-ups of, of our age, and uh, he's a big fan of Paddington. And uh, he, I, I bumped into him, and he he said how much he'd enjoyed the film and how much he wanted to be in it. And we had this very nothingy part of it, a guard. There used to be a bit of business. Sadly, we had to cut it because there just wasn't really room in the film, and it felt like it interrupted things just as they were getting going. But. 
Uh, I know he's there and now so do you. And here's the final beat of, uh, of T-Bone's story, the amazing Tom Davis, and, and, and you really feel his, his heart melting and how he's, he's really come good. He's not just cooking anymore, he's genuinely wishing Paddington well, and it, it's a very concise performance and he does it, does it very brilliantly. I think the balloon travelling across London is very, very beautiful. And uh, uh, I always had in my head uh, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, the, the great Terry Gilliam film where uh, Baron Munchausen builds a, a hot air balloon out of uh, women's underwear, women who have loved him. He, he makes a, a balloon out of their bloomers. And uh, I really wanted to do something like that. And it was only quite late in the day that somebody reminded me in, in Superman 2, they escape from prison in a hot air balloon. <laughs> it's a very sort of dispiriting thing where you go, oh dear, does that mean we can't do it? I don't think I've seen Superman 2 since about 1983. Uh, but we decided, we watched it and we decided we were different enough that we, we could forgive ourselves. What do you mean? So here we are at the, the, this amazing derelict warehouse. There, there are very few of these left in London, but there is this extraordinary place which is now being developed into flats. I suspect by the time the DVD comes out, it will be long gone, right by City Airport and uh, and uh, on on the river. It, it's an extraordinary place and a, 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 an amazing place to go and film late at night but uh, uh, very tricky and, and, and very cold too. And uh, one of the great things that uh, the actors are doing here is uh, pretending that they're absolutely freezing to death. It was an incredibly cold winter we filmed and uh, they, they, they did a great job at this. Mamalee. Paddington's about to run away here and this is the sort of terrible thing you have to do as a, as a director is to put a character you love. In my case, I, I, I love Paddington. I, I feel very personally uh, fond of him. And uh, the terrible thing as a writer and director is you, is you put him through hell. We sent him to prison as a... As a as a writer and then when I'm directing it and he runs away through this uh, through this sort of wet rainy puddle ridden thing of course Paddington runs straight through the puddles because <laughs> I felt it would be sadder and more heartbreaking he could have easily gone around them but uh, it's a little sort of probably fairly cheap trick to to make him feel sadder and, we, and we've added snow it wasn't snowing this night this is all added later it's one of the moments of kind of magic realism in the film that it's snowing as Paddington feels coldest and most alone and then and then when the Browns call, not only does the, the phone box light up, but it stops snowing. And uh, it's one of the things we try to do to make this sort of storybook London. This is a real... Uh, a, everything here is, is on location. It's a, a real alley in, in Bethnal Green, which is now a very fashionable part of London, but uh, was was not for a long time. And there are still these these beautiful sort of fairly derelict old, old alleys that we can go and bring our phone box to. Uh, one of the m bits of magical cinema magic is this is the same phone box that we've carried around with us. It's, it's not a real phone box. There aren't so many red phone boxes in conveniently depressing locations in London anymore. So uh, this is the same phone box that Mrs Bird was in and the same phone box that the children were in. It's this, this one prop that the art department kept changing. So it's the extraordinary thing that art departments can do. They can make it look like a graffiti, broken, smashed panes, miserable thing in the middle of an alley or rather smart and in, in the corner of Windsor Garden. This phone call is is something we had we had huge anxiety about. Uh, it, it's a very simple bit of acting. He he's just on the phone for a long time, and and it's very simple. And it's a real testament to the the performance that that Paddington gives. I think that this this scene works so well. And this is absolutely something we filmed with Ben many times to try and uh, get the the calmness and the stillness. I think one of the nervousness of doing animation is is that they are handcrafting every frame, and the temptation is to fill every single frame with him doing 
something and just walking and being is a very nerve-wracking thing to do and having that performance from Ben uh, really helped. So there as the light comes on, you'll see that the snow has all stopped and by the time we cut to this shot, it's, it's all gone. And that's the magic of, uh, of cinema warmth here. I love that detail there of him dropping the phone. That was something that was very late. You're, you're always filming these things with no Paddington in it. So we sort of when we filmed that, we, we had the camera moving and, and you try to imagine how long it takes Paddington to get to the phone box and, and how long it takes him to open the door and then how long it takes him to get in and pick up the phone. And by the time we cut inside, the, the door had to be closed. We only had the door closed because I, I assumed it would be closed by that point. But uh, it, it didn't quite work and we sort of suddenly had two seconds that we needed to fill with a bit of, uh, of animation. And at the very last moment I said, oh, he should drop the phone. It, it felt like it could be a really lovely little thing of you're so desperate to get the answer that you 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 sort of um you you don't do it so it's an example of uh the, the something that's not gone quite perfectly on the day actually ending up being being really lovely and and, and really helpful and uh it, it just helps the the performance feel far more organic and and, and less sort of computer generated all of the expressions here at paddington and his eyes i, I just think are exquisite and here's Mr Barnes with, with the bin lorry. Uh, one of the tricky things we had was trying to have this distinctive horn that Paddington could respond to, that you, you would sort of try and remember the, the sound of the horn. It's one of those things you need to set up in that first five minutes. It's one of the million things as an audience you need to try to remember. And uh, I, I think it just about works, but it, it's very tricky. to. We needed to find the, the perfect ringtone for the, the horn, as it were, that, that, that people would recall. This is a, a lovely bit of business from uh, Peter Capaldi here. And the, uh, the, the neighbourhood panic boards, this is something we had in a few more scenes that, that sadly disappeared. Uh, the panic board itself has lots of great settings, like uh, extremely jittery is one of them. And uh, we had a scene earlier on where, where he introduced the sense of the neighbourhood panic board and we, we saw him kind of riling the neighbours and, and sort of explaining to them how evil Paddington was. And, and it ended up going from the film because we felt we got so much of a sense from the speech he did where he lent out of the window and said all along he's been robbing you blind in the first scene that we didn't really need this second scene and, and there's lots of different storylines going on and, and you need to sort of keep them, them moving as fast as possible and um and, and so it sadly went, but it's a shame because Peter Capaldi is so funny. And all of this business that he improvises here about the, the choke and how Henry's flooding the engine and all of that, it's just stuff that Peter comes up with on the, on the night. And uh, it's another one of the many examples of why you want brilliant comedians working for you wherever possible. And this scene, I think, feels really lovely. It's sort of the first good thing that's happened for a while is that, that we feel the neighbours have come back on side and, and the neighbours sort of have rather abandoned Paddington and, uh, and, and they sort of need their stern talking to from Henry to remember their manners as well and remember the Paddington they actually know and what he actually did for them, what he's actually like. And so it's sort of the beginning of our third act here as, as things slowly get a bit better for Paddington. Uh, um, um, the, the nice thing about having a large cast of characters is that you can... Uh, you can uh, play with them a lot. This is Justin Edwards, a, a brilliant performer again in a tiny part. You may remember him from the first Paddington film where he also plays a dozy policeman. And uh, we really liked having, having him back for that very small moment. And here we are at Paddington Station, which is obviously where, where Paddington first tipped up in the, in the first film. And there's a little line in the first film where Mary says, what are you going to do now? And Paddington says, oh, I thought I might just go over there and, and sleep in that bin or, or, or something quite like that. And it always felt very nice that you actually see him actually in the bin in this film, that he really has hit the low that even in, in the first film he never, he never quite reached. 
there's lovely detail here. We see the dog food commercials in the background that uh, you, you see how Phoenix, uh, how Phoenix has been earning his money all this time. But eagle-eyed viewers may notice that underneath the clock there is sadly not the lost and found that we built for the first film. It was a, it's quite an expensive build and something we couldn't quite afford uh, to, to rebuild this time. And, and hopefully you don't really notice, but, uh, but I know it's not there. I've got an idea. So here we see the the brilliant uh, Tom Conti, who I, I haven't really mentioned yet, who's who's a, a, a fantastic uh, performer and really one of my comedy heroes uh, since forever. And and it's very nice to have him. And and the the waiter who is serving him is David Sant, who is uh, the comedy partner of Javier Marzan, our great uh, uh, physical comedy reference. Uh, and um, it was very nice to have them. They used to be in a theatre company called People Like Us, who were one of my great comic heroes, directed by Cal McChrystal, and and they did a lot of shows together. Uh, especially in the, the late 90s and early 2000s and uh, they were great uh, references for me and it was very nice to have him again in this this tiny little role. I've mentioned Gus Brown a couple of times. He, he He's our on-set Paddington and he channels the voice of Ben and, and he delivers Ben's lines on, on, on set for the actors to have something to to respond to. It's one of the things that we, I was very keen to have a, a proper actor who could improvise and play and try different things on the day so that we weren't just using a recording of Ben's voice on the day. And uh, it's nice to squeeze him in. He's the he's the voice on the radio that, that uh, Knuckles has just turned off and he's also the tour guide in, in St Paul's Cathedral. And uh, I think he pops up in one other role as well, but he's uh, he, he's great at coming and, and doing little bits of voice work for us and uh, it's very nice to have him there. But... Uh, that's really one just for me and, and Gus to be in the film. Probably the most complicated set piece is, is just coming up. It's the, the train chase. And uh, uh, I, I, I loved uh, Buster Keaton's The General for forever. It, it's got a, a great ch train chase in it. And, uh, and Buster Keaton's a great comic hero of mine. And uh, I love the idea of doing a, a, a chase with these two sort of vintage trains and, and people jumping from one to the other. You sort of feel you've seen quite a lot of material on, on trains, but, but not so much on two. Uh, but it's an incredibly complicated thing to put together. Uh, so the, the way we set about it was, was this. We, Gary Williamson, our brilliant designer, uh, designed the fare train from scratch. Fare, fare trains don't really exist, certainly in Britain. Uh, and, and they do a little bit in continental Europe and, and, and America. But we love the idea of this, this sort of Russian fare that would have travelled the world in, in, a, in an old train and everything sort of packs down into the train. And so he designed the trucks and the carriages, and they're based on they're based on other trucks, but all of the they're, they're all hand painted and it's beautiful. And we made four or five of them, and um, our amazing special effects department uh, sort of put them on these extraordinary sort of remote control car type things. But they were the size of a real train. So uh, there's a sort of famous Orson Welles quote about how making film is like getting to play with a train set, and uh, in this case it was literally true. We sort of had a full size train set, and you go, can the trains come ten yards this way? And and the the special effects people would sort of turn on their remote controls and the trains would start to move. It's extraordinary. We weren't actually on a track. We were just in the, in the sort of car park behind the studio. But, um, and so the landscape behind them, we went up to, to Yorkshire and we, we filmed there in the, in the Lake District and, um, uh, and sort of frame store put, put the two together. Um, the, the train on the left is is the the Belmont British Pullman. You can see it very clearly marked, and and that's a real train that that 
that travels round. And um, we went on a sort of research trip where they very kindly plied us with booze all day long. There were four or five of us, Simon and me, and, and John Croker, who helped us with some of the script writing, and Alex, uh, Alexandra Ferguson Derbyshire, who's, who's one of our executive producers. And uh, we all had a, a lovely time and, and quite a lot to drink. And by the end of it, we felt it was very important that we had this real train. And uh, for a while, we were going to try and film it on real tracks, but then we just realised it would be impossible. We'd be, we'd be there for, for months and the weather would change and the time of day would change and, and it just wasn't going to work. But very kindly, they agreed to let us borrow their train. So they put the entire engine on the back of a truck and drove it across Britain and uh, deposited it in our car park. So, so between uh, that train, we had that train and, and two or three carriages and, and they're incredibly beautiful, uh, the, these carriages. And, and then on the other side of the car park, we had the, the fare train that that Gary and the special effects people had built and so we were able to kind of move them to each other to you know backwards and forwards and um, further closer and further apart and so we were able to get the, the the shots more or less in camera and then the backgrounds were added as a separate layer which is is sort of something that's fairly familiar making them feel remotely realistic is very very difficult but uh, it, it's sort of one of the the great challenges so so when Hugh's doing the splits for example when he's stuck between the trains that was something that we we actually did uh, we, we we actually had the two trains next to each other and, and and they were moving wider apart on that particular shot uh, this is really spoiling the magic but uh, uh, Hugh's legs are not his own. He's a very lithe uh, gentleman in his early 50s, but he is not capable of a perfect parallel splits. So there was a very limber young man who came in and was, for that one shot only, Hugh's legs, which is a, a great role, a, a great credit you'd have thought for any <laughs> for any young actor. And uh, uh, But it was all put together at Framestore and, and incredibly complicated, these things. You have to sort of break them down months in advance and sort of try to figure it out. But... Um, it sort of seemed to work. Coming up is another one of uh, my favourite moments with Julie uh, and uh, her, her great Scottishness. The uh, never bring a knife to a gunfight is a great Sean Connery line from uh, uh, from The Untouchables, and uh, which she's reprising here. And uh, I think the way she, do, she does that bit of performance is just amazing. There's also a very lovely detail here that when um, uh, Hugh Grant sort of wields his sword and, and Hugh Bonneville's Henry ca character gets very nervous, the first thing he does is grab his daughter and put his daughter between him and the villain and it's a very nice touch that we have we've had with Hugh all the way through that that, that uh, although he does stand up and tries to be brave he's also a bit of a coward so uh, on the rooftop in the Natural History Museum in the first film when uh, when the chips are down he does this sort of great speech where he sort of defends Paddington and then and says if you want to uh, kill him you'll have to kill us all and Millicent goes okay then he goes when I say all and uh, we always like this idea that, that Henry ultimately no matter how uh, you know, heroic he got. There was always this little uh, undercut of cowardice. It's something we try to do all the way through the film is to sort of have these moments of sort of great, uh, you know, where, where, where you sort of feel the characters are sort of being heroic and sort of quite Hollywood and, and you know, uh, sort of familiar heroes and try to undercut them. So so in the car scene earlier when um, when Henry uh, does his great speech to the neighbours uh, and sort of stands up to Mr Curry, then the car stalls. We, we sort of never want ending to get too sincere and, and you sort of want to keep that, that thread of, of humour going. This is... Uh, 
a terrifically complicated sequence here. You can you can imagine the difficulty of having these trains and all these all these different elements that you sort of have to try and stitch together. And it is very complicated with how how the ladder's working and and where where Mary's reaching for. And it's one of the great examples of, of Sally's uh, extraordinary ability to kind of to keep Paddington in her head just as she's reaching out there. And 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 I feel there's sort of nothing over stylized about her performance. I, I just completely believe that she's clapped eyes on Paddington it's really an amazing gift because Mary isn't always the most uh, heightened of characters she's she's sort of the emotional heart of the family uh, she's very funny but she's also very sincere and uh, I think she has it's one of the hardest hardest parts of her job to, to sort of keep Paddington in her head as a, as a real emotional connection. She's not sort of doing a purely comic performance and, and, and Sally is, is just extraordinary. Uh, this moment here where, uh, where Hugh Grant's Phoenix gets his comeuppance was, was something we, we filmed twice. We, uh, the idea of throwing the ball actually came very late. We had a scene where, where Henry uh, boffed him on the nose. He, he, actually, he actually punched him and it just seemed too violent and, and too wrong. And, and that, that was something we did again in our pickups. And, and we realised that Henry is the old bullseye brown. We should really be using that. So this is a, a moment of very high drama that we've got coming up here. And, and when I talked about the snowball effect very early on, that you start, you start with a film where Paddington's really, you know, bumbling across uh, London. He just wants to get his Aunt Lucy a birthday present. It feels like it could be a very small, very sweet film, something that's almost like a, a sort of five-minute episode of a, a children's TV programme. And, and one of the hopes with the arc of the film is that you go from Bear wants to... Uh, by book to bear is in huge train crash going down landscape and needs saving and this moment here where where sally jumps off the viaduct and goes into the water so that there's a couple of echoes there one of them's to the the pencil drawing that she did in the in the um in her room this is the adventure that she always wanted although it feels very different from how she imagined it there when it's actually proper life and death stakes of, of somebody she loves and it's also a little echo of what aunt lucy did for paddington that paddington had given up on the Browns and, and, and he, he thought they'd given up on him and they'd forgotten him and um, to realise that they're prepared to do everything Aunt Lucy did it sort of cements their sense of um, family this is incredibly complicated. Fur underwater is is not an easy thing to get right. Everything that Sally did, we we filmed in a tank at Pinewood Studios. She is a, an extraordinary uh, actress at the best of times, and she's especially amazing underwater. Uh, she uh, luckily had had some experience doing The Shape of Water, the Guillermo del Toro film. So uh, she was. Uh, it, it's her sort of second underwater encounter with a, a magical creature of, of the year. But the the little looks back and forward here, I think. Are just extraordinary and, and you really believe Paddington every every inch as much as you believe her and it, it's a great testament and what we wanted to do with this scene was sort of really make people give up hope it, it, it's one of the things where I was talking about how we test Paddington's value system and and um, so so Paddington's only ever tried to be kind and polite and try to be a good bear and and you know live by Aunt Lucy's rules and uh, what we wanted to do with the ending was sort of get to the stage where you go no matter how hard he's tried and even no matter how hard the Browns have tried to help him uh, it's not enough uh, the, the, the philosophy of the film was you know if we all it, we, we need to stick together if we stick together we can survive and, and on, our, on our own we won't and, um, and so uh, it was a, it's a, a, a lovely 
place to have been able to get to as, as a writer to be able to sort of go, there's Paddington, there's the Browns, but it's not enough. We need kindness from all corners and we need kindness from the prisoners and we, we need them to return all the good favours that Paddington's done. And uh, and it's a really lovely turnaround. And I think there's a brief moment where you, you really don't know whether Paddington's going to make it, which is a, a great pleasure to watch with an audience in the cinema because you, you really can, can hear a pin drop. And uh, and here we are in the epilogue. From a, this was sort of most interesting from a kind of writing point of view and and, and, a, and an animation point of view. I think I think it's a great bit of performance from Paddington. And really, it was one of the very first ideas we had uh, when we were writing. I think Simon suggested on about the second day that Paddington should be trying to get a a present for Aunt Lucy, and 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 I very quickly went, oh, and the neighbours should bring him over at the end. And and I always find these kind of summing up scenes in films. Sometimes you sort of go, oh, is it over? Oh no, they've got everyone. Every, there's another scene and it feels a bit annoying. And one of the things we really wanted to keep was the sense that the plot was still going, that Paddington's journey isn't finished. Yes, he's been saved, but he still hasn't realised the most important thing, which is that uh, by living by Aunt Lucy's uh, rules is the wrong word, but but value system, uh, he's making her incredibly proud. And and his little journey here is is really not over. That He wants to make her proud. It is the most important thing. He's, he's in London and she never got to come to London. And, and he just hopes that he's doing all right by her. And he doesn't realise that he is. He feels like a little bear in a big world. Uh, and and that, that sense in the first letter where he talks about all the amazing things the Browns are doing and how important all their things are. And Judy's starting a newspaper and Jonathan's built a steam train and Mr Brown's got stuff at work and, and Mary's doing all, all her books. And, and he just feeds the dog. And for him, it doesn't mean anything. And it's only really in this scene that he realises that it actually has an impact as the neighbours come. There are the Miss Peter on the right finally talking uh, Shola gets a line there which I'm, I'm very pleased about there there are two botanist ladies who live in the street and it's only really here that Paddington begins to realise that he's the glue that holds the community together that his kindness and his decency even just stretching as far as saying good morning to people or reminding them to take their keys is incredibly important and uh, it, it's it's really a very, very lovely lesson for a, for a film to have and it, it's a very heartwarming moment what is it? Sally's performance here is through the roof. Uh, I just think she's absolutely incredible. There's so much warmth. And, and, and the interaction that she has with Paddington is unbelievable. There's a little eye flick she does as she looks over to the door as the, door frame, as the doorbell goes. And I realised that as we started putting the animation together, I realised that she knew that Paddington would look over and how he would look over to the door before I even knew that's what would happen. It's extraordinary how she knows what he's going to do. And this, at the end of the film, this is why we had the pop-up book sequence and we, why we had the hug. Because, of course, what Paddington didn't know was that what he most wanted was a hug from his Aunt Lucy. It's something he would never express. And it's very nice as a, as a writer to feel that even in the last three shots of the film, your character is learning something new about themselves. And, and it, it's a very beautiful ending, I think. But it left us with the challenge, which is how do we get all the other uh, bits of story, uh, you know, signed off? And, and how do we tell the rest of the story? Because I, I always wanted that to be the last shot of the film, but I also wanted to know what happened to everyone later and so so we we came up with this this scrapbook idea quite late in the day uh because we we wanted to say that that you know that the the prisoners got out of prison and that that knuckles would start this this uh, uh, sandwich shop called knuckles sandwiches and uh you know that that he would do well and but we 
we didn't want to have to see all these scenes or it would have felt quite bloated and it was very nice to kind of uh, come up with this device where we, initially we wrote a doll's house sequence for the for the for the brown family house and we saw all these little scenes but it just felt like another sort of three or four minutes of film that you didn't really want it felt like the end of the film had to be Paddington hugging Aunt Lucy and uh, and so this was quite a uh, quite a nifty way of doing it that's another newspaper that no one will ever read that I'm very pleased with the, the text for so uh, if you've got the time please do go back and, and pause it and here's Tom Conti again uh, uh, sentencing Phoenix. This was a, a sequence we we initially hadn't thought of the kind of musical idea. We we thought that uh, Phoenix would um, would do a Shakespeare play, or it felt like he would be doing some sort of proper acting. And I think for a while it was actually the the end of Hamlet that he'd always wanted to do. He hadn't done, and it was only sort of as uh, as as I was writing with Simon that he kept doing this ridiculous musical number, this "Listen to the Rain on the Roof." And uh, Simon did that because when he was at drama school, that was the song that he. He'd had to do is the only bit of singing he'd ever had to do. He's not a natural um, musical person, but he had to do something at, at, uh, at stage school. And it was not a song I knew. I didn't know Follies or the Stephen Sondheim musical at all. It's an incredibly beautiful, moving, uh, sophisticated piece that uh, coincidentally Imelda Staunton has just uh, uh, done a big production of. She plays Aunt Lucy uh, in, in the West End. And um, we have the most preposterous camp over the top uh ludicrous old school musical version of it that you could ever imagine it's definitely not a big band number in the original thing and uh the production actually had to write to Stephen Sondheim who's the the genius behind everything from West Side Story onwards and uh and ask him if he <laughs> minded us doing this preposterous send-up of his very earnest and beautiful uh touching song and uh luckily he's uh got an extremely good sense of humor and uh, seemed very happy to do it this was also the first day's filming we had with Hugh. Uh, so uh, you never know what you're going to get with an actor until they're actually there. And, and it's a terrible thing to have to start with a huge song and dance number where you go, it's the end of their role, but, but the prison set was being taken down and, and, and it was really, we had no choice. And, um, and I wasn't sure how much singing or dancing he'd ever be able to do. He's not a natural singer and he's not a natural dancer, but I knew I was in for a real treat when he took singing lessons and dancing lessons for weeks before we did it. And... Uh, and he was a great sport. The dedication to Michael Bond is incredibly important to me personally. He's, uh, uh, he was obviously the, the creator of Paddington and, and, a, and a great writer and a very kind man. And um, when we made the first film, I, I, I was acutely aware that even though I'd spent uh, five years making the film, he'd at that point been writing Paddington stories for 55 years. And as Paddington's initial creator must have been incredibly nervous about what we were going to do with the character. I think lots of people felt that who were just Paddington fans, but the person who actually invented the, the character must have felt that a, a thousand times over. And when we actually screened the film for him, which we, we screened, uh, you know, he'd read scripts and he'd seen bits and pieces, but when we actually screened the, the finished film for him, I was so nervous that I, could, I couldn't watch it with him. Uh, I was supposed to, and, and I just had to leave before he arrived because I, I, my heart was pounding so much. And so for, for the 95 minutes of the film, I just walked around the block and I, I just literally uh, stalked around the, the screening room 
room, uh, just absolutely on, on the edge of my non-existent seat. And then Rosie Allison, our executive producer, who had had the courage to, to watch it with him, phoned me and, and said that he'd enjoyed it. And I literally doubled over with going, oh, with sort of enormous relief. And, and I realised that the most important thing was whether Michael Bond approved. And, and obviously it's lovely if you get nice reviews or an audience finds the film, but for the person who created it to like it was was meant a huge amount to me. And I think he got a great deal of pleasure from the first film. He, he really enjoyed it. And, uh, and I think he was very pleased to see how it was received around the world and to feel that his creation had a had a you know a, a new uh, incarnation that he could be proud of and i got a huge amount of pleasure out of his pleasure that he took in the film and um it's a great sadness for me personally that he was never able to see this film we we when he was in hospital we managed to show him the the window cleaning sequence which he uh, which he was pleased with but uh, i like to think he would have enjoyed it i i very much hope so but wherever he is i hope he's smiling down on paddington too Thank you very much for listening to the commentary and I hope you've enjoyed it.